well, the fire engines may soon come. I hope not. Not sure exactly what to do with that, right? Because it's, it's just going to keep coming, right, until we figure out how to turn that off. Uh, and Larry is not here today, which is one of the reasons why we panic when Larry is not here, because he's the guy that knows how to handle all of this stuff. Um, so we'll just trust God with the alarm. And if the fire engines come, they come. And we're going to focus our hearts on the Lord Jesus and on Christmas and on the humility that we see in Christ. That's going to be our special theme this morning. As we think about Christmas, I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas again uh, and let you know what a, what a blessing we've already received as a family from so many of you in terms of just encouragements at this time and well wishes. And, um, we, we, just as a family, listen, we love you, and it is a wonderful thing to be so encouraged by you. Um, we're just very, very grateful for you at this time of year as we think about good gifts. You are a good gift to our family. And so Merry Christmas to all of you. We pray that you'll have a sweet time with family and friends in this coming week. Well, this is obviously a special Sunday for us as we think about uh, what's coming, as we think about celebrating Christmas with family and friends. Uh, if you watch television at all, you know what the culture is thinking about more broadly in terms of celebration. Uh, the culture, when it thinks about Christmas, seems to think about things like Christmas trees and good food and giving and receiving gifts. Uh, again, the idea seems to be, as best I can tell, a lot of celebration, a lot of fun, time off of work, family. But what is missing in all of what you see on television is anything having to do with Jesus and Jesus Christ and why we celebrate Christmas and what this holiday is all about. So sadly, I think it's probably true to say that most of the people who will celebrate Christmas this year will do so without understanding why they're doing what they're doing, without understanding the true significance of what it is that we're celebrating as we think about this wonderful time of Christmas. As Christians, we know what Christmas is about. We gathered together this morning with joy in our hearts because we know that God gave this wonderful gift of Christ. We gathered together this morning because the eternal Son of God left the glory of heaven to come into this world as an infant in order to live a perfect life in our place and to rescue us from our sins. C.S. Lewis called the incarnation the grand miracle. The grand miracle. All the miracles were leading up to it and all the miracles of the New Testament kind of flowed out of it. And the way he pictures it really is as if Christmas or the incarnation of Christ coming into the world was an invasion of heaven into earth to redeem, to win back, to conquer the rebellion of sin uh, in order to redeem a people for the sake of his name from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's, that's kind of this grand narrative that's behind Christmas. It's behind the, the wonder of the incarnation, Christ coming into this world to rescue his people. This is how God would save us by sending his son to come and be born a child and then to live a perfect life in our place. Christmas is why it's possible for us this morning to gather knowing that we have salvation. The grand miracle is this miracle that made our salvation possible. And what I want us to focus on this morning, though, is that it was more than that. It was also the most wonderful example of humility in human history. So just think about it again. I know it's so... I know it's so easy for us just to hear the story and not think about it, but think about the wonder that the eternal Son of God would leave the glory of heaven to come into this world 
to be born a child, to live among us, and to die for us. We want to, by God's grace, be a church that's marked by that kind of humility. We want to be a church that looks like Jesus. Uh, and, And by God's grace, we have an opportunity this morning to look at a passage of Scripture that will just present so well for us the humility of Christ so that we can pursue that humility in our church as we strive to live life together in a way that will bring honor to God. So, We're taking a break this morning, as you can tell, from our study in Ephesians. We'll be back to that in a few weeks. Traditionally, pastors will preach from the Gospels. Uh, They'll preach from, you know, the birth narrative of Christ on this Sunday before Christmas. That's a really good thing, and Lord willing, I'll have many years to do that here at Christ Fellowship, but that's not what we're going to do this morning. What I want us to do this morning, as you can already tell, is I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that will help us think about Christmas with really a, a different focus or, or through a different lens. I want us to think about the humility of Christmas. And when I say the humility of Christmas, I want us to think about, I want us to meditate on, to focus our eyes on the humility of Christ who came into this world in order to rescue us. And to raise us up to God. And that's one of the glories as you read the Bible. One of the glories of this story is that God left, God, Jesus, he left the glory of heaven to come down into this world in order to rescue us and to bring us back up to be with God. That is tremendous. That is tremendous truth. It's what Christ has done for us. He did that by humbling himself for our our good, for our salvation. Now, this passage, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to focus most especially on verses 5 to 8 this morning, is a passage that helps us focus on the humility of Christ. It's a great passage to teach us to look to Jesus. Let me give you some background on this book. The book of Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he wrote this letter to this church that was located was located in what is now the, the nation of Greece. Philippi is the name of the city. Paul had planted this church during his second missionary journey. Uh, if you want some homework this afternoon, you can read Acts 16 and you can read about that, how Paul was the one who planted this church. Paul writes this letter as an overflow of joy. It's out of an overflow of joy and appreciation for a great gift that this church had sent him because at this point in his ministry, Paul's in prison in Rome and he needed support. And, and these Philippian believers, they had sent him a gift to care for him and to care for his need. And here's the thing, even though Paul had learned to be content no matter her circumstances, he was blessed by the gift. And so with overflowing joy, he writes to them, and he writes this epistle, which is a joy-filled epistle. So if you come to church this morning and you're struggling and joy is low, let me just encourage you to spend some time in Philippians this week and think about all the reasons why we have to rejoice in our God. It's a great epistle. It is predominantly, as we say, joy-filled. However, there was a problem. As you study through this epistle, this letter, you'll see that there was an issue in the church. There were two prominent women in the church who were conflicting. So there was disunity in the body. And one of the most dangerous things in the life of any church is disunity, which is why that's what Satan's after. That's what he wants to be produced in Christ's fellowship. He wants to find a way to produce disunity in this church because he knows that by doing that, he can break down the effectiveness of this local church. Well, Paul is aware of the schemes of the enemy. He's aware that this disunity between these two influential women is not a minor thing, but it's a significant thing. And he's going to address it. When you read Philippians chapter 4, he's going to address it head on. 
But what I want you to notice this morning is that before he addresses the issue head on, he first kind of front loads the theology that these women are going to need in order to deal with the conflict that was between them. And so he spends all of this time giving them this theology, and really in many ways it's a theology of humility that's demonstrated in Christ so that when he comes to these women later and urges them to be at peace with one another, well, they have all of this wonderful theology informing why it is that they should do that, why it is that they should live in peace with one another. And of course, it's because we should be walking in humility towards one another. Paul points them to the example of Christ, to the humility of Christ, because he wants them to have the mind of Christ so that this church would be marked by that kind of, by that kind of humility, by that kind of unity, by that kind of service, and by that kind of love. And as we study this passage, those are wonderful things that God would produce in us. This kind of humility that will produce those good graces in the life of our church. So looking at verses 5 to 8, you will also see that they contain some of the most profound truth in the Bible about the person of Jesus Christ. If you find yourself here this morning and uh, you're not a follower of Christ, perhaps you're just interested in learning more about Christianity, so you're here, or perhaps someone invited you to come to church this morning on the Sunday before Christmas, this is a, a really great passage for you to be here and to learn about who Jesus is. Because you will see very on in the life of the church, the, these early believers, this, this letter is written in the 60s AD, just one generation after Jesus is walking around and performing miracles, and then he dies on the cross, which is attested by secular historians, and then he rises from the dead. Well, just a generation later, these early believers are declaring boldly the reality that Jesus is both God, truly God, and man, truly man. There's this full-orbed theology of Christ that you see in these verses. But Paul's point in the passage is to focus our hearts, and of course the hearts of these Philippian believers to whom he's writing initially, on the remarkable humility of Christ. His example of humility, his example of service. He, Paul, wanted these Philippian believers to follow that example. And of course, God inspired this letter by the Holy Spirit because he wants this church in 2019, almost 2020, to walk in this same way, with the same humility. There's a lot in this passage. There's far more than we'll be able to say this morning, but I do want us to look at the example of humility that it contains. And so my Christmas gift to you this morning is that it's only one point for the sermon this morning. <laughs> There's only one point, the example of humility from verses 5 to 8, but it's a long point. So let's look then at the example of humility that you see in verses 5 to 8. Let's look at that, that section again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Now, in kind of the broader context, the verses that come before this, verses 1 to 4, which Jason Bain just read for us, you see that, that Paul wants to see certain graces produced in the life of this church. He wants them to be loving and unified and selfless and humble towards one another. And Paul could have simply said, hey, you're followers of Jesus, so you should do this. Uh, you should be humble. You should be unified. You should be selfless. 
Uh, you should serve one another. He could, have, he could have told them that, but notice what he does. Here in verse 5, he gives them an example to follow because we need that. We need an example. We need heroes. And of course, Christ is our model for all things. And notice in particular that he's calling them to a particular way of thinking. He's calling them to a humble mindset, which is the mindset of Christ. It's a Christ-like way of thinking. That's what he means there when he says, have this mind among yourselves. And as we said before, this church is, is troubled at this point by disunity. So how is Paul going to address this disunity? As we've already said, he's not going to address the disunity by saying, hey, you guys need more willpower. Hey, you guys need to work harder on your relationship skills and your communications. He doesn't say, hey, guys, you need to just stop it. You need to just cut it out. All those things were true, but notice that he didn't say that. Notice instead that he pointed them towards a model, towards an example, towards Christ himself. Why? Because he knew that that was the way to truly promote the kind of unity that this church needed if it was going to flourish and honor God. He wanted them to follow the humility of Christ and to have that same kind of humble thinking that you see in Christ. And this is, this is really an important principle for us to understand as we live the Christian life. The way to live the Christian life, listen, it's to look to Jesus. That's how we live the Christian life. We live the Christian life by looking to Jesus, by following his pattern that he set for us, by following his example. So again, Christianity is not a religion of willpower. Christianity is not about kind of mustering up within us our own resources to live in a way that, that pleases God. We're not to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Actually, Jesus tells us very clearly in John 15, 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing. That word nothing in the Greek, it means nothing. And the idea is that we can do nothing apart from the resources that God must give us. And so if our mindset in Christianity is today, I'm going to work really hard in my effort to live for God, here's what's going to happen. We're going to fall on our face over and over and over because we can't do it. We need Jesus. We need the vine if we're to have the life-giving resources we need to bear fruit. And that's why Paul is calling them to look to Jesus. So how are we to live the Christian life? Well, he tells these believers, look to Jesus. That's what he's doing in verse 5. Look to Jesus. Look to his example. In other words, we're meant to wonder, to, to marvel. We're meant to behold our way through the Christian life as we walk day by day towards heaven. We're meant to have our eyes fixed on Christ and not on ourselves. We're supposed to marvel at this Savior who has gone before us and who has accomplished our salvation for us. Now, now, looking to Jesus is how we grow in the Christian life. Let me prove that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, what? Beholding the glory of the Lord. You know, it's this life of beholding the glory of Christ are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And looking to Jesus is how we run the long race of the Christian life. You have to understand that it's a long race. It is not, it is not a sprint. So many people, they come into the church, they hear good news, it sounds good to them, they think great, they run off, they run, 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 and they fall away. Why? They haven't realized that it's a marathon and that they need Christ every day. They haven't truly believed in that way. We are to run the Christian life, this, this great race of the Christian life, by always looking to Jesus. 
What does that look like? Well, Paul gives us an example of what it looks like to look to Jesus in this passage this morning. That's what he does in verses 6 to 8. He gives them the example here. He wants these believers to grow in humility. So what does he do? He fixes their eyes on the humility of Christ. He puts Christ before them and says, this is the model. This is the way that we live. It's this, it's this wonderful extended meditation. And I don't know about you in your own Christian life, but I find meditation to be one of the most difficult things, one of the most difficult disciplines of grace. And yet this is what Paul's doing. He's, he's giving them this extended meditation on the humility of Christ here. And so what a blessing for us to see it this morning. So look again, verses 6 to 8, and think about what he's saying. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now again, we, we will not have time to say everything that could be said from these verses, but I do want us just to kind of focus our hearts on two great truths that you see taught in these verses. The first truth is that Jesus is truly God. And the second truth is that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man in order to rescue us from our sin. So let's look at those two truths. Look first, this first truth, Jesus is truly God. Now, having studied the Bible for, for some years now, I, I am amazed there are people who will very confidently say that the Bible nowhere says that Jesus is God, and they're simply wrong. It's really all over the Bible. Uh, and this is one of the passages that teach us very clearly that Jesus is divine, that he is truly God. So look at the first part of verse 6 there. Paul says, who, though he was in the form of God. That word form there is a Greek word morphe, and that word morphe, it speaks of an outward manifestation of an inward reality. So from all eternity, Christ in his pre-incarnate state, which means that Christ before he became a man or came into this world and was born a man, was in the form or the morphe of God, which one commentator put it this way. He said that in his pre-incarnate state, Jesus possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God himself. Who is Jesus? He is God, truly God. The second phrase, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. The second part of verse 6 there, it's also important. The word that's translated in my version of the Bible, equality, is a Greek word that literally means equal. And the idea is that, that Jesus was equal with God, equal with the Father there. He was equal to God the Father, even though he did not grasp, it's a word that means cling to, the divine prerogatives that were his as God. The teaching of the Bible is that Jesus is God, that he is very God. I, I found James Montgomery Boyce helpful. He says, Paul says that before the incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God and was God's equal. These words do not mean that God has a material form, but only that Jesus Christ possesses all of God's attributes. They mean that Jesus is God. Is God omniscient? So is Jesus. Is God all-powerful? So is Jesus. Is God the creator, the redeemer, the truth, the way, the life, the past, the present, the future? So is Jesus. Paul's phrase, though he was in the form of God, is a deliberate claim of his divinity. Now, why would we take all this time to talk about the nature of Christ as God, very God. Well, friends, it's because we have to understand who He is. 
if we're going to understand the magnitude of the humility that is displayed at Christmas. We have to understand His exalted nature if we're going to understand just how far down He came in order to rescue us from our sins. Friends, Jesus is not just a nice person. Jesus is not just a a nice religious teacher or a great religious teacher. Jesus isn't even some sort of a demigod. Jesus is God the Son. He is the eternal God. He's equal in every way with the Father, the Holy Spirit. There is one God existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And here's the thing. Because He is the eternal Son of God, He had divine prerogatives, which is to say it would have been good and right and just for Jesus simply to have stayed in heaven enjoying all of the divine splendor while we suffered and sinned and wallowed in our brokenness and misery here. And the glory of Christmas is that he didn't do that. The glory of Christmas is that he chose in humility to come into this broken world in order to rescue broken sinners like us. The wonder of Christmas, this great humility of Christmas, is that he lowered himself in this way. And that's what you see, kind of the second part of this passage, the second truth that this passage lays out. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man in order to rescue us from our sins. So the second part of verse 6 all the way to verse 8, you see this wonderful humility on display. And there's many ways that you could break this passage apart and think about it. Uh, But for the sake of our sermon this morning, I want us to think about it in terms of Jesus taking steps down. It's almost like there's steps down to us from the glory of heaven down into this broken world. And the way I divided it anyways was into four steps. So let's look at four steps that Jesus took as he came down in humility to rescue us in our sin. Step one, Jesus did not cling to his divine privileges. Look at verse six again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this is Christ's humility of mind, his humble mindset that led him to the humble actions that you see in this passage. Jesus was God. He didn't need to rescue us. He could have continued to enjoy heaven and left us in our misery, but he in humility, did not grasp the ideas cling to his divine prerogatives, but instead he chose to come and to rescue. He gave up his divine privileges, which leads us to a second step. Jesus emptied himself of these divine privileges. Look at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about what it means that Jesus emptied himself. And some have wrongly taught that what it means is that Jesus emptied himself of some of his divine attributes in coming to earth. But here's the thing. God cannot change. God does not change. God cannot give up any of his divine attributes or he would cease to be God. And Jesus did not cease to be fully God. Jesus is the God man. So what is this emptying? Well, most especially this emptying is this this choice to give up the glory of heaven and to come into this world, and to give up the independent use of his divine attributes, which means he only manifested his divine attributes when it was the will of his Father, and also the humility of taking upon himself flesh, humanity upon himself. 
He gave up the glory of heaven on that first Christmas. He emptied himself of that glory in order to be born a small baby in a little town called Bethlehem in the far corners of ancient Rome. It's amazing humility. There's a third step down. Jesus became an obedient servant. Look at the first part of verse 8, what it says there. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That, that, that phrase there really summarizes Jesus' entire life. How does Paul summarize Jesus' entire life? He became a servant and he became obedient. What kind of life was it? Well, it was a humble life of obedience to the will of his Father. And here's the thing, at every point. So as a child, Jesus was obedient. As a young man, Jesus was obedient. As the greatest rabbi, it's a word that means teacher, Jesus was obedient at all point, in every way, every moment of his life. Why, friends? Because he was living the kind of life that you and I have failed to live. That's why he became an obedient servant, obedient even to the point of death. And that's the fourth step. Jesus willingly died on the cross. Look at verse 8, the second part, even the death of the cross. But Paul draws that out for a reason, because the cross was horrific. It was the worst possible death that Rome could have devised at that point. It was shameful. It was painful. It was designed to be uh, absolutely horrible in every single moment. The Jews considered crucifixion to be a form of hanging. And in the Old Testament, as you read through it, you see that one who is hung is cursed by God. And that's very, very significant that Jesus was hung on the cross. He humbled himself how far? How far did he travel down in order to rescue us? Well, he traveled down from the throne of heaven to the cross of Calvary. He traveled from the highest place of blessing to the place of greatest cursing. And that's what Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, this is, this is the humility of Christmas. You know, we have to understand it is, it is magnificent, glorious, mind-blowing humility that the eternal Son of God would come into this world to be born an infant, a helpless child. But the true humility of Christmas isn't seen even in that, or at least not the full humility. The full humility is seen when you realize that that little child that was born was born to die and was born to die the most horrible of deaths in our place so that we might be saved. There's great humility in Christmas. And that's what we need to see. That's what we need to kind of embrace and think about as we, as we go through this season, which is so busy, right? And there's gifts and there's toys and there's lights and there's presents and there's visits and there's all kinds of opportunities to be doing so many things and we can, we can miss the best thing if we don't stop and think about what it is that we are celebrating. And, and, and this is part of it. Now, part of what we're celebrating is this glorious display of humility in Christ who came to rescue us. There's a lot we could say. Let me give you then three, three kind of ways to apply this to our hearts this morning. Paul pointed the Philippians to the example of Jesus' humility because he wanted them to grow in humility. 
How did he, how did he want them to grow? He wanted them to grow in humility by looking to Jesus. So if we, church, want to grow in humility in our individual lives and corporately as a body, as a faith family, the way we will grow in humility is by regularly looking to Jesus. So let's do that this morning. Let's just take some time and think about the humility that you see displayed in Christ's life. Think first of the humility of Jesus seen on that first Christmas. Here's the eternal Son of God, born a helpless babe. Uh, he, he wasn't born in a beautiful palace of marble and gold like you might expect the king of glory to be born into. He was born to a poor couple, and, and he was in a stall for animals, and he was laid in a manger. The voice that spoke galaxies into existence was reduced to crying for his mother's milk. It's amazing. The eternal Son of God was helpless in his mother's arms. This is the humility of Jesus. And think about the humility of Jesus that's seen in kind of the next glimpse we get of his life when he's 12. Uh, and at this point, he's, he's maturing in wisdom and stature with favor with God and man. And he goes into the temple and he is absolutely amazing all of the religious scholars of his days with his insight into God's law and who God is and asking them questions that they can't answer. But think about the humility that is displayed when his parents come to get him. Jesus so longed to do the will of his heavenly Father that he was willing to submit himself to fallible, erring parents. And he didn't just do it for a little bit of time. He did it for years, humbling himself under imperfect parents for the sake of doing what you and I could not do. When Mary and Joseph called him, he was submissive to them and lived under their imperfect authority. And then think of the humility of Jesus seen in his poverty and ministry. You know, many of the religious leaders that you see on television our day, they want you to see how wealthy they are, how unlike Jesus, right? Jesus, as he goes around preaching the kingdom of God uh, in Israel, what, what does he do? He brings along with him these 12 men, and where do they stay? Well, they stay wherever they can because he was homeless and poor. This was the will of, of his father, that he would not have a place to lay his head. This is the humility of Jesus. And then think about what Terry Lackey read for us earlier from John 13 and Jesus' humility in washing the feet of his disciples. The disciples had this wonderful tendency to argue with one another about who was the greatest and about who was going to be the most important and about who was going to be the most significant. But on that night, Jesus showed them what true greatness in God's eyes looks like. He, he sat himself aside. He put on the robe of a servant. He took a towel. He stooped down and he washed the feet of his disciples. This was the task of the lowliest servant in the house. And notice that he stooped to wash Judas Iscariot's feet, knowing very well that Judas would betray him. This is the humility of Jesus. And then think of the humility of Jesus seen in Gethsemane. Here, here he's wrestling with God in prayer. He's sweating great drops of blood. And it wasn't because he was afraid of the cross. He wasn't afraid of the physical suffering. He was terrified, rightly, of being separated from communion with his father for the first time in all of eternity. It is this massive, amazing weight that he's looking at that causes him to sweat drops of blood. And he's praying, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. But then he humbles himself again under the will of his Father and says, not my will, that your will be done. You see, Jesus passed every possible temptation because we have failed every temptation. And he did so through his humility, not my will, but your will be done. And then think most of all, 
of the humility of Jesus seen on the cross. Here's the eternal Son of God stripped naked and exposed. His hands and feet nailed through. He's dying on the cross for us. He's mocked by his enemies. He could have come down. They told him to come down. He could have come down. He could have called legions of angels to defend him, but he chose not to because he could not both come down and rescue us. And he died for us. He humbled himself and bore the weight of the curse of sin so that we might be saved. The author of life willingly submitted himself to death so that we might live. This is the humility that's seen in Christ. This is what marks his entire life. Andrew Murray said this, he said, In heaven where he was with the Father, in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his seating on the throne, it is all humility. It is nothing but humility. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. He is the eternal love, humbling himself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. As the love and condescension of God makes him the benefactor and helper and servant of all, so Jesus is and always will be the incarnate humility. Even in the midst of the throne, he is the meek and lowly Lamb of God. So how will we grow in our humility? We'll grow in our humility by looking to this one, to Jesus, the one who has gone before us. Yet we need to meditate on, on his sacrifice. We need to meditate on how far down he came in order to rescue us. And we must realize this, that it was our sin that held him to the cross. Yeah, he did it for us. You know, it's so right for us to humble ourselves before him. It's so right for us to worship and glory. I, I know what's going on in some of your lives. I don't know what's going on in all of your lives. I do know that if you have this Savior, you have great reason to rejoice in this season because Jesus has rescued you. Friends, this time of year, Christmas is an invitation to look to Jesus and meditate on his blessed humility. There's a second application that kind of flows out of this first application. It would be, if we would be humble, we must look to Jesus, but then by faith, we must also act. By faith, we must also act. There's this, there's this mystery to our sanctification where we know that it is God who's at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, and we know that we must strive and work and obey, and we never get to be proud. We only ever get to be thankful because God works in us. So if we want to be humble, then we need to choose that path. And we need to pray and pray and pray. The path of humility is chosen as we choose to humbly serve. And Jesus' example of going lower is an example that all of us need to follow. That, that, that example of going lower. Friends, we're never safer in the Christian life when, when we are choosing to go lower in the eyes of others for the sake of loving them. We're never safer. So what might it look like for you, for me, to go lower in our lives? Well, it might look like something as simple as beginning our day with prayer. I can't tell you anything more basic, anything more helpful than just simply to say that if you want to grow as a believer, you must spend time with God God gives us himself through his word and prayer. And if you want to be like Jesus, you'll be like Jesus as you spend time with him. So, so it's so tempting, right? In America, we're very busy. We, we kind of judge other people by whether they're as busy as we are, you know? Busyness almost seems to be important in some ways. 
We rush around to accomplish all the important things we must do, and we find ourselves so often like Martha, who's running about and serving, but neglecting, neglecting the better portion. And that good portion is fellowship with Christ. Why do we do it? Why? We have to stop ourselves. Why do we do it? Friend, when we get to the bottom of it, it's because of pride. It's because deep down, we think we can live the Christian life with our own resources. And that's why we don't pray and ask God to give us his resources. And so if we want to change that, well, the way we change that is by repenting today. Friend, you certainly won't change yourself by beating yourself up this afternoon. If you've been struggling with your quiet times this week and Satan's like, look at you, you're the worst Christian ever. Just understand, you're among friends. So, so what do you do? Friend, what you do is you repent and believe. God doesn't need you to punish yourself. He's already punished Jesus in your place. He, as a good father, wants you to simply turn and believe. He wants you to come back to him. And so this week is this opportunity to begin your day in fellowship with Christ. To acknowledge God at the beginning of your day and to walk with him throughout the day. It's so basic. It's so fundamental. It's so utterly vital. And you have the spirit of God within you to help you do it. Perhaps it looks like confessing hidden sins to another trustworthy brother or sister. There's some risk here. You need to be wise here. But one of Satan's lies is just simply to give us good and even godly sounding reasons to keep the sin that's killing us hidden from others. He'll give us all kinds of wonderful sounding reasons why we shouldn't actually share the fact that we're struggling with others. Why? Because sin loves the darkness. But the Bible tells us that if we're going to walk in victory, we must humble ourselves and confess our trespasses to others so that we might gain victory over besetting sins. Now, there's a lot to that. And, you know, pastorally, if you have questions about what that might look like in your life, I'd encourage you to talk with Ron or Scott or or me or the pastors in the church about this, what that might look like. But here's the thing. The path of humility often in the Christian life looks like going lower by being honest with other people about the fact that no one here has it together. No one here has it together. If we had it together, we wouldn't need Jesus. We all need Jesus. So if you're struggling this morning with some besetting sin, the invitation to you this morning is to go lower by finding a mature, trustworthy, uh, older brother or sister in the faith who will love you and pray for you and help you battle whatever that sin may be. It might begin like serving in unseen ways, right? It's very tempting, uh, at least particularly early on, I think, in the Christian life, but even throughout, to want to serve in upfront ways. And there's nothing wrong with serving in upfront ways, but there's something distinctly beautiful about choosing to humble ourselves by serving in ways that only God notices. Right? You notice it's all over Matthew 6, right? Yes, let your father in secret see you. There's something that's beautiful about that. I'm grateful for our child care workers who serve this way week after week. I'm grateful for those who set up communion each month. Few people see them do that. I'm grateful for the AV team that succeeds when they're not seen. I'm grateful for those who set up and tear down before and after the service. You know, they're doing that before many of you get here. They're doing that after many of us leave. I'm grateful for those who give rides to college students. You know, they're serving in ways that's unseen by many. I'm grateful for Linda Stowell, who drives to Costco or Sam's Club or one of those places in order to replenish the supplies of the church. And no one ever sees her do that. It's just one of the ministries that she does in the church. So as we meditate on the humility we see in Christ, let's pray that we be a church that, that's marked by people that choose to serve in humble, unseen ways. And then here's, here's one that I think is big for all of us. 
Let's just pray for the grace to think of yourself less as you go through your day. And just know that I need that just as much as you do. Most of us spend so much time thinking about what we like or what we don't like or about our current emotional temperature or whether or not people took what we said the right way or whether or not people like us or about what might happen to us in the future and on and on it goes. If you will just stop and think about the things that make you miserable as a believer, you will find at the end it's because you're thinking about yourself. Happens to me all the time. I know it happens to you too. We will never be more miserable in the Christian life than when self is at the center. So if we're going to pursue this grace of humility, we need to pray for grace to think of ourselves less. C.S. Lewis pointed out, well, the opposite of pride is not thinking less of ourselves. The opposite of pride is thinking of ourselves less. We could just joyfully and blissfully forget ourselves and get lost in serving God and serving others. That's what humility looks like. That's what Christ did. Do you see it as you read through the Gospels? He's constantly concerned about God's glory and the good of other people. It's a third application. Christ fellowship, pray that a Christ-like humility will pervade our church. If that happens, I believe it's happening. May it happen more. If it happens, the impact on this church will be profound. Our church will be marked by unity. I bless God that it is. I pray that it will be marked by more unity. Our church will be marked by service. I bless God that it is. I pray that it will be marked by service more and more. Our church will be marked by love. I bless God that it is. I pray that it will be marked by love more. You notice that these are precisely the kind of graces that Paul was was wanting these Philippian believers to experience in the church. He wanted them to experience this unity, this service, this love. And here's the thing. Humility is the soil in which all the graces of God grow. That's not mine. That's Andrew Murray's. He's good, by the way. You should read him. But it's true. Humility is the soil in which all the graces of God grow. And we want that in our church. Let me speak with you this morning. If you're here and and you're not a follower of Christ, you've never turned from your sins, you've never trusted in him. I wonder how this message has struck you this morning. I know it's so different than what the world says. The world says, go after all you can for you. The world says, get as much as you can while you can get it. The world says, make sure that other people notice you. Make sure that other people notice your success and that you excel and that you succeed. We want you to understand what the world is selling you is something you can't keep because you're just like us. You also are sinful. You also have rebelled against God. And as a result, you also will die. My friend, you must one day stand before this God, the God we've been talking about. What we want you to understand this morning is that Christmas is about Jesus and Jesus is the Savior, which is what we need. That's why we gather together this morning with joy in our hearts. It's because God has done for us what we couldn't do. It's the good news of the gospel. It's this reality that God is a good and holy creator who made us to love him, to serve him. He wanted a relationship with us that would be marked by love and by kind of an intimacy of fellowship and by us walking with him and obeying his will. But instead of that, our first parents rebelled against God. They decided living for themselves was better than living for God. We sinned in them, and because we come from them, we have all been born with that same mindset. By nature, it feels right to us to live for ourselves. That's what sin does. It turns us in on ourselves. It makes us selfish. And as a result of that, we sin against God. We either hate Him or we simply ignore Him. 
We rebel against him, though. And we harm others as well. There's no one sitting here this morning that hasn't done things that we know are wrong and wrong at a deep level. The Bible calls all of this sin, and the Bible says that sin is serious. That sin separates us from God, and it brings us under the just judgment of God. And there is no way, here, you must hear this, there's no way for us to be good enough for God. There's no way for us to make up for the wrong that we've done because God is holy and we're not holy. So what hope is there, friends? It's why we celebrate Christmas. The hope is that God gave the Son to be the Savior that we need. Now, the eternal Son of God came into this world. What what kind of life did He live? Well, He lived this perfect life of love and service and humility. Why? Because we failed to live that life. And then He offered Himself freely on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners, because we could not pay that sacrifice, he died and then he rose from the dead. And now there's this glorious good news. We proclaim it to you this morning that if you will turn from your sins and put all of your hope in Jesus and what Jesus has done, God will receive you as his son or daughter. Jesus will be your savior. All of your sins will be forgiven. And God will look at you as if you live Jesus Christ's perfect life. For it is a a free gift. It's why we give gifts on Christmas. It's what this is about. So we would press this on you this morning and just urge you to trust in Christ this morning. Don't put it off. Don't say, I'll get serious about religion later. Friend, we don't have later. But this morning, Christ is offered to you as a Savior who saves. Now, friend, put your trust in Him today. If you'd want to talk with someone or pray with someone about that, I would love to talk with you after the service, and you're sitting around others who would love to do the same thing with you this morning. That's the hope that we have because of Christmas. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we have because of Jesus. Well, as we look ahead to Christmas this week, I pray that God will press on our hearts the humility of Christ, that we will stop and take time to think, to think about what he has done for us, how he emptied himself that we might be saved, how he who was rich became poor that we might become rich, that we would humble ourselves so that we would live lives that bring praise to him. And here's what we must understand as we conclude this morning. Jesus will be praised. Because of this life of humble service, he will be praised. Look again, verses 9 to 11. See how this passage ends. Therefore, because of what Christ has done as being the humble Savior, therefore God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus Christ is ours. Let's rejoice in him. Let's pray.